Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the righteous, unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let us pray. Father, we do echo the psalmist in what we have just sung, that though we may not be young, you will direct our way as we seek wisdom from you, as we seek to know what you would have us do and as we seek to be those people of the book who would seek to understand your ways, to know what you have revealed to us and how we ought to conduct ourselves and how we ought to pray. And Father, we do pray that you would instruct us and teach us the way we should go, that we would not be, again, as the, the psalmist has said, not like the mule that was stubborn and had to be moved about by bit and bridle, but Father, we would respond to your voice we respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit to direct our way, and we'd be pleasing to, your, to you in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Having for a few weeks looked somewhat at the theology of prayer, last week looking at the idea of becoming an open book prayer, uh, and I do... Um, say uh, these opening remarks somewhat with a little bit of panic and or perhaps paranoia, thinking of the myriad of things that we could talk about in terms of prayer and then realizing this week somehow that I had, I don't know, looked at the wrong calendar and thought this was the last week. And yet, here, I think we've had an opportunity to see some, as I say, of the theology of prayer the prayer in the name of the Father we looked at. We also regarded the office of Christ in, in regard to prayer. And if I understood Romans 8, 26 and 27 better, I might have tackled what it was the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer, but I will tell you that um, when I looked at Owens and Calvin's and um, another treatise, and they were treatises on the Holy Spirit being 100 pages each, um, decided that I needed to tackle that a different time when I have studied more what the Holy Spirit does as we pray. Obviously a very awesome but a very serious topic. But today and for this time that we have together, I've decided that I, I really needed to stick to those things that I had studied, things that the Lord had, had brought to me in my reading in the spring and early summer regarding prayer, and I realized that I am one of those who, who needs a continual reminder of the necessity 
and the duty and the value of prayer. And really, this lesson that Jesus gives us here, uh, the words stuck out uh, that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And someone who is given to fits of melancholy, someone who is given to times of discouragement in prayer, or my lack thereof, I needed to hear these words. And yet they were surprising to me when I see them in their context. To just read that, they ought to pray and not lose heart, I think we, we miss, first of all, the, the reminder again of the necessity, the duty of prayer, but also what Jesus links it to in these eight verses. In my studies, I looked at several verses as options for this evening, and I will read a few of those to you because I think they dovetail with these, again, helping us understand that both Jesus and his apostles put a, a great deal of emphasis on prayer. We're reminded in Matthew 26 how Jesus came to his disciples when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and had been praying, and he found them sleeping, the scripture said. And he says to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, we all of the flesh have weaknesses. And he's saying, keep watching and praying that you may not fall into temptation. And that's in the context of when they were probably very weary having been up all night with their Passover meal and then going with Jesus to the garden, they may have been complacent, but I think perhaps that there was a sense from what Jesus had been teaching them just previous to that, his, his great upper room discourse, I think they were in shock. And this message, keep watching and praying, would be very instrumental to them in their life to come after the resurrection, that they may not fall into temptation. In Colossians 4, Paul says to them, devote yourselves to prayer. That, that devotion, that, that giving of themselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well. See, he, he, again, the, the value or the duty of that prayer is not just for ourselves, but for the ministry of the word. Because he says that God may open up the door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Isn't that what we pray for here in this congregation? That those who come through these doors will hear of the mystery of Christ and of the gospel. There's an energy a fervency, a mindfulness, a keeping in mind of what prayer ought to be for and about, along with, as he says, an attitude of thanksgiving and keeping in mind the, the various needs of the service of ministry of the church. And of the value of prayer, I came across this from John Chrysostom, I think is how you pronounce it. I've known his name for a long time, but heard it pronounced about eight different ways, but he says this, quote, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, 
expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is an all-sufficient panoply a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the foundation, the mother of a thousand blessings. John put a lot of emphasis, a lot of thought into what prayer did, and most of those, as you will see, recognize, were just things from Scripture that came to his mind, I think, as he contemplated the value, the power, the all-sufficient panoply, quote-unquote, of prayer. But all believers, I, I think, need a lesson from Jesus on prayer and faith. And that's what we have here in Luke 18. And this thing that he, that he tells us. In our kitchen, we have a kitchen door that goes out to our screen porch, has a lock, a deadbolt, with one of those that's keyed on both sides. And I think we did that so that when the children were younger and the grandchildren now, uh, they can't accidentally unlock the door, you know, just do the bolt and go out. But we all, you know, we've had people come over, friends or relatives, and they're trying to get out, and, you know, they turn the handle, and it's the keys by the door. And sometimes we're like that as children of, of, of God, and I think Jesus here very graciously tells us, look at the passage, the key is by the door. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The context, and we don't have time to go into a great deal of depth in the context, but it comes after the passage in Luke 17 where he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of the Son of Man. And again, there is a questioning here. There's people going, what is going on? What is this man about? Who is this? And what is he doing? And the Pharisees come to him in verse 20 of chapter 17 and saying, now having questioned, been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And he goes on to tell them that it will be like the days of Noah, so that it shall be also in the son of man, uh, days of the Son of Man. There, there's, there's a great deal of fear. There's a great deal of, un, of misunderstanding, I think, but also a great deal of confusion. What is going on here? And obviously that was in response to the Pharisees, but he is instructing his disciples. He is telling them about the days to come immediately and in the future. And, and yet, he's, Jesus says, I'm telling you this parable because in the midst of this, you ought always to pray and never lose heart. And he gives the illustration of the widow. And you might think, well, you know, why does he just name, why didn't he just say a woman? But in my understanding, a widow in that time was someone of very little concern to the society. They, they were perhaps not total outcasts, but they had very little respect, and no one regarded them. Certainly the judge here had no regard for her. 
And she was unprotected. What we see is that she comes and says, give me protection from my opponent. Her, her antagonist had free reign. The adversary had no restraint. And she had no protection. And so she's coming to the judge. And the judge says, you know, says twice. He's no, not God-fearing. He has no respect for people, especially a widow, and he has no care about her problem. And yet, he says, because she bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And my marginal note says that you could translate that as she will hit me under the eye. <laughs> He is feeling an impact of her continually coming and requesting help, of, of legal protection, of justice being done. And Jesus illustrates for us in this passage when he says, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now let me ask you this question. He illustrates that his elect children are under his special care. There, there's, the resemblance begins and ends right there. That he is like that unrighteous judge in that he will respond, but the way that he responds and the reason he responds is totally different. And yet he says, think about that. Here's the way he responded now in verse 7. Shall not God bring about justice for his elect? See, there's something that he's instructing them here. You're different because you are elect. I will respond in a way that I don't respond to others because you are the elect. We read about the elect. David read in... in 2 Corinthians, or Thessalonians chapter 2, did he not? It was their calling through the gospel. Um, verse 13 of chapter 2, Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. See, see there is something that we ought to, to pick up on, that these people, or the elect. He's not just saying everybody ought to pray, they ought to not lose heart, it'll be all right, it'll come. He's saying, will he not bring about a justice for his elect, for those of you that he has chosen, who cry out to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? See, think about me. Think about what you know about God, how he will respond. And the marks of the elect are that they are people of faith, Paul says in Romans 8. He uses the word to be conformed to his image, being conformed to the image of Christ. Faith in Christ and conformity to his image, Romans 8 tells us, is a mark of the elect. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul singles them out for three things. He, he can tell he, the mark of the elect there, the work of faith their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. See, these are, these are not ordinary people. These are the elect. And here in Luke chapter 18, he adds one more thing to what 
is characteristic of the elect. They pray to God day and night. See, He's, there's that assumption here to me, who cry to him day and night. They, there's, there's no who might or some of those who do, but it says who do this. They are people who call upon God's name. And God says, I'll vindicate them. I'll vindicate those who come to me day and night. And he adds in the first part of verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. See, God is not a God who is unaware. God is a God who will come to his people's aid and he will come speedily. Now there are those who say, wait a minute, Luke and Matthew are in opposition. In Matthew chapter 6, we read about those when Jesus teaches in the Sermon of the Sermon of the Mount on prayer. Those, he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. And then he talks about, and when you stand praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And here we read over, they ought to pray day and night and not lose heart. Is Luke in opposition to Matthew? Is Jesus in opposition to himself? Well, the question Jesus asks is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. And you might go, wait a minute, he's talking about prayer, and now he's talking about faith, and I'm saying, yeah, he's talking about faith and prayer, prayer and faith. Because will he find believers playing with a daily urgency, with an energy, with a trust, and with a hope? Or will he simply find people praying in meaningless phrases and empty words, supposing that they will be heard? The show of the words, the vain repetitions, as some of your editions say. And there's one of the problems, is that some of the prayers are just vain. Vain repetitions, empty words, just to be heard, to string things together, but there is no faith. Or goes on in Matthew 6 to say, For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Apparently, there were those who pray in a way, as John Piper put it, quote, that makes God look ignorant and apathetic. See, he says when you, when you pray that way, as you pray as a hypocrite, or when you, when you pray in a way that is vain repetitions, you make God look ignorant. You make him look like he doesn't know what he's doing or he doesn't know what your needs are. But isn't the fact of Scripture telling us where he says we ought to pray in the name of the Father? When we say our Father who art in heaven, he is your Father. Of course he cares because he is your Father. And of course he knows because he is omnipotent. But vain prayers will expose the fraudulent. Prayers of faith will expose the elect. 
And that's what I see here as the tie of faith and prayer. Jesus is saying the prayer of faith, as James, will avail much. There, there is power, there is efficacy in the prayer of faith. So how do we persevere in prayer, prayer as we should? By faith alone. By faith alone, our difficulties in prayer, or our, in the case of some of us, slothfulness in prayer, or our excuses in prayer, are overcome. And delay is no discouragement to the prayer of faith. And again, it, it seems contradictory here that there is... We're being told that they would always pray and not lose heart, and God will come speedily, but we wait. We wait on Him. See, the, the dependence is, is still on God here, that, that God would answer them, that God would be the vindicator of His people, that God would answer in justice. And so we're reminded in the Scriptures of someone like Abraham in Romans 4, where Paul uses these words, in hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become the father of many nations. Paul instructing us about the man who is called the, the father of faith, the, the one who is rewarded for his faith. In hope against hope. He was patient, the scripture says, and yet through faith and patience he inherited the, pro the promises. Again, it seems like there's a contradiction here, the faith and the patience. But the faith and the patience go together. They're, they're, they're a tandem. You can't have one without the other. Second Peter 3, Peter uses this kind of language. Looking for, or some of your versions, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. See, there's a waiting and there's a hastening. Jesus says you ought to be fervent, but you also to be patient. You ought to have that faith and you have that prayer together. And some of us learn, need to learn the, the lesson of James. The farmer, he says, look at the farmer. Be patient, therefore, brethren, he says, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. And yet, by faith, he does that. By faith, he plants that seed. By faith, he weeds. By faith, he waits for those early and late rains. Patiently, by faith. And, and that delay does... It doesn't bother the farmer, and that delay should not bother us. Now, what we do is we say, well, I must not be praying in the will of God because I haven't seen the answer. That's not faith. And we say, well, you know, I must be praying wrongly, so I, in wrong motives, I'm, I'm not going to pray. That's not faith. Faith looks at what God has said and then calls day and night on him to do what he has promised. Sometimes we just learn, need to learn to be still. I was looking, uh, drawing my attention to Psalm 131. And again, I, I say uh, just one of those kind of gulps when I was on the way home last week and realized that in my 
sermon on being open book prayers. I had only concentrated on the prayers of Paul and Peter, and yet the, the Psalms are full of open book things that we can grasp and pray. And David in Psalm 131, he, he says, Lord, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty, nor have I involved myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I don't think he's saying you can't do anything that's hard. I think what he's saying is that when I come to prayer, I lay great matters aside. I lay these things difficult that would cause me to concentrate on them instead of on these things. He says, I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. If you've ever seen that after the baby nurses and then it's just so content and resting on the mother, that picture of faith resting and yet completely satisfied knowing that they are taken care of. He says, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. See, there's, there's faith and there's prayer. There's that stillness and yet there's that anticipation before him, setting aside noise, setting aside distractions and great matters. No reliance on self, no importance of self, but trust and dependence on the Lord. And so we see the faith and patience combined. Again, I struggle with this. As I saw in Andrew Murray's book, you know, he writes this. They seem contradictory. Faith rejoices in answers not yet seen. And patience cries day and night until the answers are revealed. That's the faith and patience together here. Andrew Murray says this. Quote, the speedily of God's long-suffering is met by the triumphant but patient faith of his waiting child. The speedily of God's long-suffering is met by that child who prays day and night in patience, <laughs> knowing that the prayer is of faith because it's based on the promises and the word of God and the character of God. So the instruction that I see here is prayer, pray in faith, and give God time. Because Jesus says in this passage, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over him? Let us pray. Our Father, please, we ask that you would help us to understand these things. That, Father, we might have a heart of, of wisdom. We might have a heart of, of faith and patience. That we would cry to you and not lose heart. And yet know in your timing, in your way, in your manner, you will answer these things for your glory and honor and for our good. And, Father, we, we ask that we would walk this way. That we would walk with, with this kind of faith. That we would not be small in our asking. We would not be timid. But we would be as the widow, knowing that people in this world are no respecters of you or of us, but that should be no matter to us, because we know that we are elect, that you have called us to be your own, and you will answer speedily those who are your children. We pray that you would do these things. We pray that you would be glorified in them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Please rise for the benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Instructions that we, we see from Paul and perhaps with, with a, just a confident cry in his voice. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen.